All right, who's ready for the word today? All right, open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, and I think the Lord has a word for us today that I would describe as an incredibly encouraging, uplifting, faith-building word. I've been, I've been letting the Lord just minister to me all week in this thing, and I'm telling you, every time that God has just done this throughout this week, it's just built my faith, it's encouraged me. I, I just feel so uplifted in the truth of what this word is that God is bringing to us today. So my prayer is that you would feel today uplifted, encouraged, and built up in your faith. Amen? All right, let's read the first few verses. Acts chapter 10, it starts out like this. There was a certain man in Caesarea who was called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and prayed to God always. That's a pretty good resume. Would you agree so far? Cornelius is doing pretty good. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, everybody say the ninth hour, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. We're going to pause right there. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to set us on fire today with your word, God. Set us on fire as your Holy Spirit moves and, and is permitted to move unrestrained in this place, in every life and every heart that's here. We open ourselves up as open, empty, broken vessels, ready and prepared to be filled to the brim and to the overflow. God, would you light us on fire with the truth of your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we see the story begins with this guy named Cornelius. He is a Roman soldier over an Italian regiment. See, my cup is full to the overflow here. It's spilling all over the place, um, which means that he is a man of authority. He's probably overseeing hundreds of troops in a legion or infantry, and it says that he is praying. He's been giving alms, which means he gives to the poor. He gives generously. Uh, he's a man who fears God, he and all of his household. And it's the ninth hour of the day he's praying, and an angel appears to him in a vision, or shows up, I should say, probably not a vision, probably actually in front of him, and the angel speaks to him and says, Cornelius, I got a message for you, your prayers and your alms and all of these things have risen, and they have risen as a memorial before God. This is beautiful. We're going to plow into this today. What does it mean to have a memorial built up for us before God? Before we get to that, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things here. So Cornelius, he hears this message, and then the angel announces to him that God is going to send someone. He's going to send someone to where Cornelius and his household are here in Caesarea. So now they're kind of like in this anxious anticipation mode to hear the message what is it that's coming that God is bringing to me? And notice that the angel said, something is coming 
And it's because this memorial has been built up for you here in heaven. So we know, if you read the rest of Acts chapter 10, that the person that comes to Cornelius is in fact Peter. God visits Peter, gives Peter a vision, and then says, I want you to go to Caesarea. And so Peter's all the way, I believe he's in Joppa, which is a great distance away. And so Peter's command of the Lord, he steps out in obedience. And Peter doesn't even really fully understand what this thing's all about. But praise God for those of us who step out and obey, even when we don't understand exactly what the outcome is coming, right? And that's what Peter does. And so he goes to Caesarea, beautiful port city on the Mediterranean Sea. We've been to Israel a couple times, and when you go there, it's just this gorgeous place where you could see like sea ships would come in, they would use it for trade. Typically, the Roman governor that was over the region would reside there. So it's a place of great authority and influence. Um, and so Cornelius is waiting, and Peter shows up. Peter gets into the house, and then Cornelius tells him, in fact, let's just read verses uh, 30 and 31. When Peter gets there, Cornelius tells Peter what's been going on, and he says, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, at the ninth hour, and I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius... Here it is again, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Wow. Going out of his way to let him know that all of these things that he's been doing have been essentially making their way up. Let me say it another way. They've been ascending into the heavenly realm and they've been stored up for something that's about ready to happen. Now, I don't want to move on too quickly without making acknowledgement of something that is interesting, Peter's response when he sees this. Because Cornelius is a Roman, but he's been praying, so likely he's converted to Judaism. That did happen. Sometimes people from foreign groups around Israel would convert to Judaism, and they would worship the true God of Israel. A lot of times when they did that, they would have to be circumcised in order to come into the Abrahamic covenant. Aren't you glad we don't do that in membership class today? Hey, man, you're almost through next steps. We just got one more final deal to seal the deal. Literally. <laughs> snip, snip. All right. I know. I think about that with my turtle neck going on right here. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> put that out of your head. But Peter, his reaction is great. He says he's blown away when he hears this because he knows that Cornelius isn't a Jew. Yet God has sent a message that now it's time for Peter to bring the good news to Cornelius and, might I add, his whole household. And Peter says, I perceive now. It's like he's saying, I see something I've never seen before. I I get it. God is on display and doing something that's bigger than I've ever even envisioned or admit that I have seen in my biggest prayers or thoughts. Do we not know that God is a God who does exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever think or ask? Ephesians 3.20. And so Peter's like, I perceive something here. And this is what he said. I perceive that God is not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. He says, I perceive that God is a God who shows no partiality with men. Wow, there is a picture here. In fact, if you really want to get 
technical and get into some theological study, I believe what you'll discover, I think it's there, is that Cornelius is really a figurehead for a level of unity in the body of Christ that had never been seen before. This is the first Gentile revival that takes place in the Bible. Now, we know that the eunuch that was on the road, Philip actually ministered to an Ethiopian eunuch, and he got saved and baptized, but that was an individual. This is the first time that we see like a Gentile revival happening, and it's happening in the home, in the household, in the family of a Roman centurion in the port city of Caesarea where there is huge influence all over the place. It breaks out after this. But here's what I want to say. We need to recognize that God is a God who shows no partiality with men. You see, we look around today, I don't know if you see this, I think you probably do, but the enemy has launched an all-out attack against America. I would go as far as to say there is an intentional assignment that has been unleashed by the forces of hell, and it's to bring division at every level in our nation. We have division around race. We have divisions around politics. We have division around this virus. We have mask division. <laughs> I mean, we have mask division. I'm not trying to make light of people's emotionally charged opinions. I get it. I mean, I have my own opinions too, but I'm just I'm speaking to the body of Christ, right? We have a lot of non-essential petty things that we are allowing the enemy to divide us around. And Peter's looking at this man, Cornelius, and I'm just telling you, he doesn't look anything like him. He doesn't believe very many things culturally, traditionally, that line up whatsoever. These men are on opposite ends of the spectrum as far as those things are concerned. But what's happening here is bigger than all of that. The Word of God and the blood of Jesus is going past all of that and bringing them into a place of unity in a family, in the family of God. I just want to say to us, church, today that there are people in our communities right now hurting, dying, going to hell if they don't hear the good news. And if we can't see and love beyond our differences... I just wonder what hope there is. The church has to lead the way. And I think over the next 6 to 12 months, Josh, I think that the most significant thing to pay attention to is what happens and continues happening in the body of Christ. Do we continue to become more and more united around essential truths? Or do we allow the enemy to divide us around non-essential things? Because I'm going to tell you this, if the enemy is attacking America like this, please don't be fooled. He's trying to make his way into your home. He's trying to make his way into this church. He's trying to make his way into your workplace. He's trying to make his way in between you and your children and your siblings and your family. He's trying to do that. You take two identical twins, you put them in the same room from the same genes and everything else, and the enemy will immediately begin to try and divide them because he's an, he's an agent of division. We've got to be wise to these things. You understand that, right? And Peter's blown away by this 
revelation and by this truth. So what ends up happening, if you read the last four verses, 44 through 48, I think, God just, while Peter's preaching the gospel, the Lord just pours out his spirit. Remember the prophet Joel? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy, see visions and dreams. It already happened to the Jews at Pentecost. Now it's happening to the Gentiles. Fire from heaven is coming down. It says they spoke with other tongues. So God is the God who freely gave his son, not just for the Jew, but for the world, and he freely gives his Holy Spirit to all who would ask him. Unity just went to a whole new level. And the boundaries and limitations of what Peter's been seeing have been broken off. Gentile revival takes place. We know from here on out that Paul continued ministering to the Gentiles through the rest of the book of Acts, and there was revival all over the place in Gentile communities. Unity in the body of Christ. Cornelius says this too when he talks to Peter. This is really the major direction I'm heading in today. He says, uh, it was the ninth hour when I was praying and this thing happened. Now, we can pass by a lot of things in Scripture as we're reading them and miss some of the significance that's there. But you know that every last part of Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-inspired. So it carries the life, power, DNA of God. It's alive, which means it's all relevant. And as we plow into the ninth hour, there's great significance in that. It's actually something really, really important. Because when you go back to Jewish law and custom as God gave it to Moses and his people. One of the things that God commanded them to do after they erected the tabernacle is that they would perform daily sacrifices. And there were two a day. There was a morning sacrifice and then there was an evening sacrifice. Sacrifices and offerings that were brought to the Lord for these for these times were a reflection or a foreshadow of the prayers, the petitions, and the offerings of the saints. I'm going to show you that in just a second. But they would come two times a day, morning and in the evening. The ninth hour, if you look at the Jewish clock, there's tw- they, they look at it as 12 hours of daytime, 12 hours of nighttime. And the first hour of day begins at daylight, which is around 6 a.m. usually. So the sixth hour of the day would be what? Noon. The ninth hour of the day is 3 p.m. That's about the time the evening sacrifice was being prepared. Let me just tell you that during the morning and evening sacrifice, part of the preparation is that a lamb was being slaughtered, killed, and the blood was being shed. Do you remember in the Gospels, Jesus, the Lamb of God, died at 3 p.m.? the ninth hour. Pretty amazing when you look at all this. You see, the Bible tells us that every part of the law, all the ordinances and customs were a foreshadow of things to come, the substance of which is Christ. He fulfills all of that. Those things weren't the end in themselves. They were actually like an arrow, like a beacon pointing to the one who would come and fulfill all of those things. So Cornelius is praying at the ninth hour. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. 
And this is what the Bible says about the way the sacrifices were performed, what would happen. This, you're going to get this in just a second. This is huge. The people, as the morning and evening sacrifices were being performed, they would also bring to the priests their own offerings. There were burnt offerings, grain offerings, different kinds of offerings for different types of things. And the priests were considered the mediators between the people and God. They didn't bring them themselves and do it. They brought them to the priests, and the priests would go into the tabernacle or the temple, and then they would make those sacrifices for those people. And then here's what happened. Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord... His offering shall be a fine flour. He shall put oil on it, put frankincense on it. Now listen, he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take it from his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and then the priest will burn it, here you go, as a memorial on the altar and an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord." So picture this. As they're burning the sacrifices of the people, the offerings that the people are bringing and giving to God, the priest, the mediator, is burning those in the altar, on the, in the, on the altar in the tabernacle or temple, and then the smoke of the sacrifice, it says, rises into heaven, and it's as if a sweet aroma to the Lord. Jewish customs say that these, that these sacrifices literally went into the nostrils of God, that he inhaled them and it was sweet to him, which is very important because it means that those sacrifices please God and that person finds favor in the sight of God. But he doesn't only find favor as we're thinking about it. He finds favor and then that sacrifice or that offering or that act that's been done for God is now stored up, built up as a memorial for that person before God. It means it's been recorded, it's been registered, it's a memorial that now God looks upon this person for and has favor over, and there is an appointed time of a release of reward and blessing for them. I want to encourage us today, church, I want to encourage us that God is the God who sees, who hears, and who records we have a tendency in our humanness, done it myself many times, to pray, to look around, and to ask God, where are you right now, Lord? What are you doing? Why are you not acting yet? We say these things, but we need to be encouraged that God tells us again and again and again throughout His Scriptures that when we do things for Him, He very much sees, He very much hears, and He very much is recording all things and has a plan to do something about that at His appointed time. You see, the prophet Habakkuk came to the Lord and said in a time of great calamity in the land, Lord, where are you? Why are you not hearing me and your people? Why do you let iniquity prevail? Why, God, when will you show up and do something? And the Lord's response to the prophet Habakkuk was, Habakkuk, I do see and I do hear, 
And I am at work, but if I tried to tell you what it is that I'm doing, I'm telling you right now, it's so astounding that you'd never even believe it. I, I wonder how many times God is up to so much that that's really the position he has, is you just couldn't take it all in. <laughs> if I tried to explain it to you, it, just, it would just crush you. You wouldn't even get it. He reveals what we need to see, but my God, there is so much more beyond the picture we see. Now, I encourage us today, church, that the God that we serve is a God who remembers and who records and registers those things which we do in his service, and he has planned at his appointed time a reward and a blessing that will be released. Listen to this. God remembered Noah. And brought his family through the flood. God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. God remembered his covenant with Abraham when he heard the cries of the people in Egypt. And God remembered Hannah and gave her a son. It says in every one of these verses, remembered, remembered, remembered. I find it amazing because when we think about just sound theology... We know God is a God who is omniscient, right? He knows all things. He's God. He's the creator of all things. Of course he remembers. He's omniscient. But God specifically says again and again and again in his word to us, I remember, I remember, I remember. Because we need to be reminded. Because God knows that when we feast on and inhale the breath of God in this word, that when we see the truth of the promise that he hears, he sees, he remembers, he records, and he will reward. It encourages us in our time of need, and there is something faith building about it. We need to hear that today, right now. I believe that. You know, I know that my wife loves me. I know that. Or she wouldn't be here anymore after 16, oh gosh, 17, oh man, 16, 17 years. I'm drawing a blank. Coming up on 17, thank you. I know she loves me, but I still need to hear her say it, right? She knows I love her, but she still needs to hear me say it. We know God sees all things, but we still need to hear him say I remember. I've recorded it. It's registered up here in heaven, and I got a plan to do something about that. Isn't that powerful? So, so we think about this priest taking the sacrifices for the person. The person didn't have access individually. The priest had to be the mediator to offer the sacrifices that would ascend into the throne room of heaven be a sweet aroma pleasing to God, and he would remember as a memorial those things for that individual and have favor upon them. But listen to this. Again, foreshadow of things to come, the substance of which is Christ. This is what Hebrews tells us about our Messiah, about what he fulfilled in this old law and ritual custom of Leviticus, how he fulfilled that. It's in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest, which we know Jesus becomes our high priest, 
who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary and true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, for there already exist priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a, listen, this is huge, copy and shadow of what is in heaven. The model God gave Moses for the tabernacle and David for the sanctuary or for the temple is a copy or a replica of that which is actually in heaven, not made with human hands. It says in verse 5, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, a sanctuary, a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain, the mountain of God, where revelation occurred, fire in the cloud, Holy Spirit. Verse 6, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since now the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but these are important verses to digest because here's what that's essentially saying. That whole law and that whole custom of the priests taking sacrifices from individuals and burning it and presenting it to God so that you'd find favor in his sight, Jesus has now become your high priest and he's now become your mediator. There's no man in between you and God anymore because Jesus has made a way. And when you do anything with a pure heart in service to God, guess what? Jesus is up there in the throne room presenting those sacrifices and offerings before the Father, and it is becoming as a sweet aroma to Him, and a memorial and a register is being recorded for you. He's powerful, powerful. So I want to tell you today about a few things that the Bible specifically says, things that we do that get registered or get recorded, never forgotten, and that a reward is planned. The first thing is, number one, our giving. Our giving. We see that Cornelius, it says he brought alms, which means that he was giving generously to the poor. Now, when you really study the Bible, you find that there are really three different types of giving there's tithing, which is the foundation, the first fruits of what we've been blessed with. Then there are offerings, which are the generosity of our hearts, that God leads us to sow seed into places where it is needed. Outreach, poor, community, orphans, widows, just all things where it's necessary. That's offering. That's above and beyond the first fruits of the tithe. And then there's also what the Bible describes as the spiritual gift of giving, which says when you're led by the Spirit to give in this way, you do it with all liberality. Cornelius is bringing alms, which means he's sowing, he's giving to the poor, and it says that that has been a part of what's been recorded and registered in heaven for him. Now, if you go back to the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi came to the people with a caution, a, a word of rebuke from the Lord that said, you've robbed me in the tithe. You have not been bringing the tithe into the storehouse as you've been commanded to. So they were neglecting that. And so they were, they, were, they were neglecting the blessing that God wanted to bring to them as a result of the tithe. And this is what happened 
when the people heard the words of Malachi the prophet about being about robbing God from the tithe. Listen to this, Malachi 3:16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So Please notice here that it also says about them, they feared the Lord. Did you notice about Cornelius? It said he feared the Lord. This is very important that we understand this. There's all of this blessing and promise and reward that we hear that encourages us. It's great. It's amazing that a child of God has this. But the whole idea is, is that we do it for the right reasons. We're not doing it for the reward We're doing it because God commands us to do it, and it pleases Him, and it's an act of worship for Him. The reward is just a bonus, right? It's about the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. If we're legalistic in the way we do anything, I'm doing this as a rule and I'm going to get a blessing, it changes the whole outcome. But if our heart is right before God in the way we present it, fearing the Lord, doing what's right no matter what, whether I get a reward or not, but I'm going to get one because God says I'm going to, but that's not my reason for doing it, then we fear the Lord. Then it says as, as they were doing that, as their hearts were torn, and they brought the tithe back into the storehouse, and they began to walk in covenant with the Lord again, that was recorded in the book of remembrance. That's actually the title of my message today, if you take notes, a book of remembrance. So we see that tithing, we see that alms and giving all bring rewards. Let me say this. There is a blessing and a covenant for those who walk in faith according to the tithe. And the Bible also says that there are blessings for those who are generous. So sometimes people are generous in their giving, and then they're rewarded for that. But they're not tithing, and so there's another added element of blessing and covenant with God that they're missing out on entirely. Sometimes people are tithing, and they're walking under covenant with God in that, but they're not generous above and beyond the tithe, and they're missing out on the blessing of that. Let me just say that there's a fullness of blessing in all of these things that God promises us. If you're walking in covenant with God in the tithe, something comes against you. You have the right legally to declare, I'm a tither. And the Lord says, he will rebuke the devourer for my sake. You have legal right because God is obligated to perform his word. Do you understand that? When he records something in heaven, he's bound to it because he's bound to it by himself. No greater thing which he could swear by than an oath by himself. So he is obligated to perform that. So when you have something coming against you or your provision or whatever, you may not see how, but you have the legal right to announce to the forces of darkness that are at work against you, I am a tither and I walk in covenant with God. And he hears and sees and God is moving on our behalf. You know, I... And I tell you this only to just kind of make my point, but Katie and I have been tithing ever since after the very first year I got saved. But we've been giving above and beyond the tithe as well every single year. Like when you look at your giving at the end of the year, we're we're way above 10% because I believe the tithe, but I believe in being generous. But I believe those who are tithers and who also are generous also open themselves up to being used by the Lord in the area of the spiritual gift of giving, which I would refer to as kind of an extravagant gift. 
It's that gift when the Lord speaks it to you, you're like, whoa, did I hear that right? But the Lord knows that we can be trusted, and he uses those in the body of Christ to give those types of gifts, so those kinds of extravagant seed in the areas where it's needed. I can remember on a handful of occasions over the years where the Lord has led us to give an extravagant gift that for us was very, very extravagant, very, very large amount to go to a certain cause or certain individual or whatever it might have been. And there's one particular time where I remember we did that, again, just doing it because the Lord said to and we obeyed and we were happy to do it for him. And then it was a number of months later, I don't know, probably four or five months later, hadn't even thought about it in a long time. And all of a sudden we got blessed. There was a blessing that came to us that was almost exactly 10 times the amount of the blessing that we gave in that extravagant gift. And I thought, holy cow. And it was like, listen, this one, it was like God reminded me when he did that, that he remembered and recorded what we did. And he was releasing a blessing to us because of our faithfulness. God remembers our giving. It's always recorded in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, a lot of people are storing up things in earth. To store up treasure in earth is to try to get. I need, to, I need to accumulate. I need to acquire. To store up treasure in heaven is to give. And when we give, we are storing it up in a place where God records it and where it can never be taken away. We try to store it up here on earth. It says it's, it's finite. It's vapor. Moth and rust will destroy it. So to store up in heaven means to lay up or to have recorded for a day of future recompense. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God good? He says, I'm going to reward my children for everything that they do in my service. The key is how and when he chooses to do that. It's all up to him. But we can walk in faith every day knowing what I'm doing, I'm doing for God, and it's pleasing to him. It's a sweet aroma, and he's recording it and registering it. As long as God sees it, as long as it's pleasing to him, then I don't care what happens down here with anybody else because that's what it's about. I'm pleasing him and him alone. So our, so our giving. The second thing that, that God sees, records, registers is our prayers. Our prayers. It says the prayers of Cornelius, just like the offerings in Leviticus, that they would bring to the priest, that his prayers had ascended and reached heaven. They were part of what formed a memorial. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. When the Lamb had taken the scroll, this is John's vision, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, listen, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints like golden vials filled with all of the prayers of God's people that ascended into the heavenly realm. 
Isn't that a powerful picture to think about? Let me say it like this. No prayer that you've ever prayed with the right heart has ever hit the ground. Every one of them have reached the heavenly realm. Every one of them have reached the throne room. And they've been stored up in golden bowls, just awaiting God's time of appointed release of blessing for his children. Isn't that powerful? Sometimes we think maybe some people have a, you know, a bat phone into heaven, right? They have an inroad. Some people's prayers are heard more. I want to ask this person to pray. Of course, I'm not saying don't ask people to pray. You do. But sometimes we get a false picture like their prayers are more potent and more powerful. No. God says every prayer that you've ever prayed has reached heaven. None of them have hit the ground. I hope you know that. I hope that you can stand in faith when you may not see how or what's going on, but know my prayer is stored up in the heavenly realm, and God knows exactly what he's going to do about that, and trust in faith. Matthew 6, 7, or 6, 5, when you pray, you shall not be like hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners in the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. That's praying with the wrong intent. Not going to accomplish the same thing. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room which you, and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Let me say it again. Will reward you openly. There's a reward that is promised to come because the prayer has reached the throne room and has been registered and recorded. So just like no prayer is ever forgotten, no reward that God promises and intends to give is ever forgotten as well. So our prayers, our giving, number three, our serving, our serving, our act of service Let me say, this could just look a lot of different ways, but anything that you do to serve your fellow man in the service of God, I would categorize in this area. Your acts of service for the Lord to serve others is recorded and registered. Let's look at an interesting story real quick in 2 Kings chapter 4. The prophet Elisha comes to a widow, and this is what happens in verse 1, a certain widow A woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Let's just note once again that the woman talking about her husband said he was a man who feared the Lord. Okay? He did this for the right reasons. But she says he was your servant, and now he's dead. And me and my sons find ourselves in a predicament. We have a debt that can't be paid, and all we have in the house is a jar of oil. Elisha says, well, 
Here's what you need to do. You need to go get every jar in the neighborhood, in the village that you can get from all of the people, bring it into your home, go into your room and shut the door behind you. And when you go in with all of those empty vessels, then just keep pouring out the oil from jar to jar to jar. And every empty jar will be filled with precious oil. This is a picture actually of the secret place. When we go into the secret place with Jesus, we shut the door. If we are empty, open vessels, then he will fill us to the full with the precious oil of the Holy Spirit to the point of overflow, and it will provide for our every need and our service to others. That's what happened for her and her two sons. And what I find very interesting about this, I've always thought this was interesting, is that the widow is seemingly reminding Elisha. It's almost like she's recalling something to remembrance. Do you catch that? She's saying, hey, your servant, my husband, a prophet. It's like she's saying, my husband served you. There were sons of prophets that served under the major prophets. Elisha was a major prophet. He had many prophets that served under him. She's saying, my husband served you. He was a prophet and he served others. Now, Jewish historians write from the very early first century, this is not recorded in Scripture, but so you just need to know that, but the Jewish historian Josephus records in the first century that the man who was the husband of this widow was the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah was a prophet in the time of Elijah who took a number of God's prophets and hid them in a cave when Ahab and Jezebel were executing all of God's prophets. It says that Obadiah brought them food and water to take care of them. So he served God's people. Now, whether it was or wasn't, the woman is still coming to Elisha and she's saying, my husband served you. And he served God, and he feared the Lord, and I'm in a predicament, and I'm asking you to remember what he did. And Elisha says, what do you need? And she tells him, and then God releases a blessing at an appointed time to make provision for that which has been recorded. You see, I believe that many of the blessings that are being stored up as they're being recorded are not only going to be recognized and realized in our earthly life. We know many rewards and blessings come in the heavenly realm, but I believe there are blessings and rewards that are being stored up that God is going to release over our future generations. The Bible says in Proverbs, a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. We're not just talking about dollars and bank accounts. We're talking about spiritual blessings and reward that have been stored up in heavenly places. I wonder today, I think, what does the memorial that's being built up in heaven look like for you right now? What does it look like? Are you a man, a woman who you could say fears the Lord, does what's right in the service of God no matter what, your giving, your prayers, your service? If so, I'm telling you, according to Scripture, there's a memorial before God being built up for you that God will release in due time. And that ought to encourage you today 
that God, in fact, hears. He does see, and He is working and moving and has a plan to work all things out together for your good. That motivates, it encourages, and it builds our faith today. The last thing that I'll tell you, the Bible says, actually, let me say this, Hebrews 6, verse 10, about our serving For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name. He never forgets it. The last thing, the fourth thing that God sees that gets recorded that never misses is our suffering. Our suffering. This is one one that Christians sometimes have a difficult time with. Yes, we are promised the abundant life. We are promised blessing. But we are also told that we will endure trial and tribulation for his name's sake. Persecution, suffering, comes in all different forms. You might be, your name might be slandered, you might be misrepresented, you might be attacked, you might be persecuted, you might be made fun of. I mean, people being physically attacked now for things. We know that. It happens. God is saying, when you suffer for my name's sake, I record every single moment. I see every last bit of it that you felt. He goes as far as to say that Christ himself suffered for our sakes and that when we suffer, he shares in our suffering with us and he promises to deliver us from that. How he delivers us can look a lot of different ways, but he promises us he will deliver us from our suffering. But the thing I'm drawing attention to now is that God says your suffering every moment is recorded. And there's a blessing that's coming to you for that. Listen, Psalms 56, verse 8. David says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Whew, isn't that powerful? Powerful. Romans 8, 18. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present age not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Hallelujah. He's like, I've suffered a lot. Nothing compared to the reward that my Lord has planned for me. He sees every bit of it. And if it's for his glory, I'll do it again and again and again. I hope that's where our faith is at today, to know that we may not see in our humanness what we think the transactional response might need to look like, but to know God is in fact fully at work recording, registering, and planning everything that he's going to do, and that should be enough for us. But I got to tell you, as we begin to move towards wrapping this up, I got to tell you that is astounded as I am, that God remembers, that he records, that he registers in his book of remembrance, all of these things, promises a blessing and a reward to me for my faithfulness, as astounded, and folks, I am astounded, I am in awe of this, blows me away. But as astonishing as the idea and the truth that God remembers and records and rewards is. I got to tell you, 
I think what astonishes me more than anything else is that God forgets. You say, what do you mean? He can't forget. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all things. That's true. But because he's God, if he chooses to forget something, he's all-powerful. He has the capacity to do it. Do you understand that? You say, well, what does God forget? He forgets one thing. There's one thing that the Bible tells us again and again and again, that the God who remembers, sees, and records all things chooses to forget. And that one thing is our sin. And praise God that he is a God who forgets, who blots it out, and who wipes it away as if it never existed. Because had he not done that, there is nothing in this earthly, worldly realm that could offer that provision for us. We would be bound to death if it had not been for the reality that Jesus came and shed his blood so that God could look on us and see the blood that was so powerful that when he saw it, it would cause him to forget. Listen to this, Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. For I will forgive, Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Everybody say, God forgets. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 8, 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Acts 3, 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. God chooses to forget this thing, which is the thing that can separate us from his presence. He desired for us to be in relation with him so much that he would send his only son and freely give him so that those who would accept him could be saved and that the blood could make a way for us to be in his presence, which the removal of sin had to happen before we could stand and come into the presence of God. The blood purges the sin nature out of us. And as I close, I think about Peter and Cornelius. And I think about how God was showing him that this thing just went to a whole new level. This guy, this family, this household that looks nothing like you, has none of your traditions, none of your culture. You guys aren't even on the same page. But God has a plan to unite them into a family that's a heavenly family where we become one body. God for Peter that he was willing to go because there was a lot of things standing in his way I don't know if we realize or appreciate enough 
how many reasons Peter probably had not to go to this Gentile's home and his family. But Peter saw past all of that. Thank God he did. Because revival broke out in the house of this Gentile. This man who looked nothing like him. I think that the Great Commission, folks, summons us to the houses of the Corneliuses. To the people who don't look like us. Who don't share our traditions or our thoughts or opinions about a number of worldly non-eternal things. Will you be able to go? Will you be able to love beyond your differences? The things that make you look different than other people. Will you be able to be that messenger of hope? Because I think God could have very easily just used the angel to announce the good news to Cornelius, but he did not. He chose to use a man. He chose to use Peter, who needed to get beyond his differences and cultural barriers to bring the hope of the gospel and the good news to a man, to a family, and to a household who could become a part of his family now and be united with him in a way that is worldly impossible. Can we get beyond those differences in our world today? I don't think the same way as you do about a mask. I don't think the same way as you do about politics. I don't think the same way as you do about all these things. Can we love beyond those differences with the hope of Jesus Christ? Because, folks, I'm just telling you, if we cannot, heaven is going to be a really big shock to you. Really big shock. Because every tribe, every tongue, every nation and ethnicity will be represented. And that's what the body of Christ needs to look like right now as close of a reflection of heaven as we can get to. Where unity around one thing, Jesus Christ, Him crucified in the message of hope and truth. We are uncompromising about that. But that one truth can unite all of us around something that's greater than anything that's happening here in this world. I hope and I pray in the months ahead that we will see the church move towards greater and stronger places of unity as opposed to greater places of division. Amen? Let's stand today and worship the King.
say God hears, but say God remembers, but God forgets, and he's forgotten my sin, and I am thankful for that, and because of that, I will go and live my life in his service. May you go in the peace and favor of God. May God bring revelation to you through his word in ways that are astonishing to you. May you be in awe of the goodness of the graciousness and the power of Almighty God every day in your life. And may you live from that place of awe. May the message of hope echo through your deeds, your actions, and your words every day that we may unify a world that desperately needs that right now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.